Drive from Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, about 40 miles south on I-95 through the sprawling suburbs of Northern Virginia, and you'll come to Stafford County, boyhood home of George Washington. It was here that 14-year-old Pocahontas was abducted by English colonists from Jamestown in 1614. The sandstone to build the White House and the U.S. Capitol came from quarries in Stafford County. Today, it is one of the highest-income counties in the United States, and home to over 160,000 people. Many of them commute to federal jobs in the district, or to the defense and federal law enforcement facilities and contractors from nearby Marine Corps Base Quantico, and scattered across D.C.'s northern Virginia suburbs. Our story starts in 2015, when a Virginia nonprofit association purchased a parcel of land on Garrisonville Road for a cemetery for low-cost Muslim burials. They had operated a small Muslim cemetery elsewhere in the county, on Brook Road in Stafford, for over 20 years, and it was filling up. They bought the land for the new cemetery, having verified with the county that it was zoned for that use, by right. The winding path from there for the association and the Millbank pro bono lawyers who represented them in a federal civil rights trial casts a light on the intersection of religious freedom, land use, and local politics in America today. Law, Policy, and Markets. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by my partner, Tafik Rangwala, in Milbank's New York office, and Melanie Yanez, a special counsel in Milbank's DC office, both members of the firm's litigation and arbitration group. Let's get to it. Tafik and Melanie, thanks very much for taking the time to get together this morning. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Yes, thank you very much. Tafik, I'm going to go back to the beginning of this case that you and Melanie worked on for so many years. In 2015, tell us what happened at the beginning of this long and winding road. Well, the beginning is really with an organization, our client, the All Muslim Association of America, going to purchase a plot of land in Stafford County, where they found that the land was zoned by right to be used as a cemetery, which essentially means the land was zoned for a use without much fanfare or without much work other than ordinary permits to be used as a cemetery. When the AMAA bought the land for their new cemetery in 2015, it was zoned for that use by right. Under state law, they had to meet two requirements. First, get the immediate neighbors to consent to the cemetery. Done. Then maintain a minimum buffer of 100 feet between the graves and any wells to provide drinking water. Done. That 100-foot setback distance was confirmed as safe by the Virginia Department of Health. Requirements in hand, the AMAA set about hiring engineers and consultants and got to work. And that's really how the case starts. This group that provides low-cost burial services in the D.C. area for uh, Muslim community members went to purchase land, purchased it, assumed it could be used as a cemetery, and went about developing it and getting engineering studies and doing a lot of work, only to discover many, many months later when they had done all the work and showed up at the planning office to get all of the necessary paperwork filed, that behind the scenes, a whole lengthy planning commission process within Stafford County under its board of supervisors had been initiated and completed to change the laws such that the land that they had bought for use as a cemetery could no longer be used that way. 
So when they bought it, it was legal to do so. And behind the scenes, the planning commission changed the rules so that it no longer was. That sums the whole story up, really. It's, it's a Muslim group, buys a plot of land, thinks that it can use it for one purpose. People get wind that it's going to be Muslims that are using that land. They don't like that fact. And they initiate a really rushed and unusual ordinance changing process to basically prevent them from doing what they're supposed to be able to do. And that's really where we got into the case to try and help vindicate AMAA's legal rights. Right. And what was the specific ordinance that they initially passed that had the effect of uh, at least temporarily outlawing the cemetery? So in 2016, the ordinance, basically under the pretext of water quality safety concerns, prevented any cemetery from being within 900 feet of a private well, a perennial stream. Virginia code requires a hundred feet of separation. So it went well beyond anything, you know, through discovery, we found documentation that very early on the county was informed that a hundred feet was completely sufficient and would pose no harm. But nonetheless, they went ahead and put in 900 feet, which essentially rendered the entire property unusable. Nine times the Virginia state requirement. 900 feet is a long way. That's three U.S. football fields laid end-on-end. The height of the Chrysler Building in New York laid on its side, and nearly as tall as the London Shard. And why did the county change the law? Did they do scientific studies or anything to come up with that three football field length distance? (laughs) That's a big, that's a long way. No, they did not. From what we can tell, the, the most they did was some internet searching. And they found some kind of limited publications, nothing from the U.S., nothing actually showing any harm and nothing that was relevant to what they were doing. But that's nevertheless what they pointed to as a basis. So the association eventually then contacts you, Taufik, and some also nonprofit Muslim advocates and so forth. And when you first got the case, what was the first questions you had? Well, we got the case through our partnership with Muslim advocates. You know, Muslim advocates was a group that had been introduced to Millbank through some of our contacts in diverse bar associations. And we'd uh, loaned Muslim advocates, some of our uh, Muslim advocates, some of our office space. And when they came in, they brought us the case. They told us, look, this is a pretty clear violation. Our first question was, do you have evidence of clear anti-Muslim animus? Because everything about the case feels and smells like it's a case of anti-Muslim animus. And that's why this process occurred. But we were like, do you have direct evidence of that? And what we had at the time and what Muslim advocates had at the time was a lot of circumstantial evidence, but no smoking gun where someone had said, we are trying to change the law here as to prevent a Muslim cemetery from being built. And you can imagine no one wanted to acknowledge that. And so I'm getting ahead of ourselves. But one of the key moments in the case for us at Millbank, more than a year down the road, was the explosive moment where in discovery we obtained an admission that the current chairperson of Stafford County's Board of Supervisors, someone put words in her mouth that basically said in strong terms that she was not going to allow a Muslim cemetery to be built across the street from her home, which is where she resided, and that she had very personal reasons for not wanting to see that happen. And they very much had to do with it being a Muslim cemetery. Right. So the supervisor board chair lives across the street from the site that they purchased at the time she was on the planning commission when this rule change came about. That's absolutely right, Alan. And, you know, it's a clear conflict of interest that doesn't appear to have been disclosed to some other members of the board of supervisors. 
and some other members of the planning commission. And so in the litigation, that was, you know, itself an issue and I think created some tension within the political establishment within Stafford County, because not everybody necessarily knew that the person advocating for these changes lived across the street from the proposed cemetery and was directly going to be impacted by it or may have views on whether it should or should not be built. Right. You mentioned a clear violation, and obviously one can imagine constitutional violations, both First Amendment and rights to property, probably state constitutional violations. There's also a federal statute that's relevant to this case, right? There is. The Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, so it's shorthand as RELUPA. There are multiple prongs of RELUPA, but we proceeded under two. One is the substantial burden that simply provides that in order to impose a substantial burden on the religious use of land, there must be compelling circumstances, least restrictive means of meeting those circumstances. And then secondarily, the discrimination case so that you couldn't discriminate against the religious use of the land. And that overlapped primarily a lot with our constitutional law claims, as you mentioned. So under ILUPA, there's, you mentioned there's two prongs to it. So when you started the case, you're really only in the first prong, right? Because you didn't yet have the evidence of explicit bias. Well, no, we still thought we could allege a discrimination claim. The same way constitutional law works, it's, there are um, what are called the Arlington Heights Factor. So you have to show that there was an unusual process, the historical nature of the change, the background of the organization and the way the change came about. And so all of that looks at, importantly, the circumstantial factors, because in some ways, I guess it's sad to say, some ways, maybe not, that these discrimination tactics, people have gotten smarter about not making an overtly anti-Muslim statement at a variance hearing. But they nevertheless have the same sentiment. And so the courts are willing to look at all of the features around how the change came to be to show, in fact, that there was a discriminatory animus. The All-Muslim Association of America, or AMAA, is a nonprofit organization set up in 1989 to provide low-cost burial and funeral services to Muslims living in Washington, D.C., Virginia, and Maryland. Skander Javed is its president. Skander, when people see a case like this, they say, oh, it's a new cemetery, but they don't realize you've actually been in the community for quite some time with the original Brook Road facility for, what, about 20 years? Is that right? For 30 years, yeah. 30 years. And the cemetery on Brook Road, when you were developing it, Obviously, you know, it took 10 years from the time you first had the idea and bought the initial seven-acre site until the first burial. And then you expanded it, I think, once thereafter as well on, on Brook Road before buying the new Garrisonville Road property. The relations with the county throughout all of those initial processes were pretty positive, I take it. Yeah, it was. So didn't really have a big problem. Now, when you provide the low-cost burials for the community, as I understand it, you don't charge for the land. In other words, in a lot of cemeteries, the major expense for people, besides the service and caskets and so forth, you know, they may have to also buy a burial plot. Whereas in your case, the funerals are kept affordable for families that otherwise might not be able to afford them because you're essentially subsidizing the cost by not charging for the land. Is that, is that right? Yes, that is correct. The land is actually, it's a community property anyway, because the funds have been donated by the community members to acquire the land. John Kahn is a vice president and member of the board for AMAA. So that's why we only charge for the cost of burial, like 
the liners and the digging costs and and the stone cost of you know headstone, which is common for everyone. Everyone gets the same side of uh, size of a headstone, and it's nominal cost and for operational cost for the burial. That's why we charge only seventeen hundred dollars for that service. What would the community do if there was no Muslim cemetery in this part of Virginia? It would have been very detrimental. You know, people going, you know, like begging with the state and the counties and uh, the different, you know, welfare organizations. Skander Javed. You know, the reason behind building the cemetery was that in the beginning, like I came into this country in early 1970s, and there were hardly, you know, people from our, you know, the faith and the community and all those. And people were working, you know, like odd jobs, you know, working at 7-Eleven, gas stations, restaurants. And people were kind of, you know, getting established in this country at that time. So people were not able to afford that. So you can imagine, you know, people would have to go to state welfare organizations and this county welfare organization to fulfill all their needs. That's what the need came into our mind, saying that we need to have something at least when somebody dies, people are allowed to bury their loved ones according to their faith with the less money. You know, you wouldn't believe when we were starting it, people gave like $5, another person gave $10, $20. That's how, then the first, the seven and a half acre was purchased for $36,000. And that was the cost for that land at that time. And you can imagine how difficult it was at that time. Oh, I'm sure. And the, the new property in Garrisonville Road, which gave rise to this civil rights case, when you first were buying that property, you checked with the county, as I understand it, to make sure that you were allowed by right, that the parcel was zoned for uh, cemetery use. And you were, you were doing all the right things under the laws that existed at the time before this new ordinance came in. Were you surprised when the new ordinance with the additional setbacks were imposed? Surprise would be a very <laughs> light term to use in this uh, this retrospect. John Kahn. We were just blindsided. We were like hit by a two by four because it put us on a standstill from the developmental uh, perspective because we were running out of space. We had projected certain timelines of current existing up, uh, space and usability of the space. And we did a feasibility study when we would need the other property to be up and running. So, you know, we would not have the ability to serve the community. If we don't have land, then we can't serve the community. That the community has entrusted us for this particular task. And now we can't fulfill the void. Out of options, the AMAA finally sued the county in June 2020. The U.S. Department of Justice quickly joined the lawsuit. After the Milbank pro bono lawyers and the DOJ sued, you might have thought that the county would repeal its apparently discriminatory ordinance. You would be wrong. Instead, two months later, the county modified the ordinance to change the minimum setback, but not to the 100 feet set out in the state code. The new required buffer zone was cut from 900 feet to 656 feet, more than two football fields long. That meant that 80% of the AMAA cemetery site still could not be used for burials. The county added a new requirement that cemeteries obtain a conditional use permit, rather than allowing that use by right. But not all cemeteries. There is an exemption for churchyard cemeteries. Cemeteries adjacent to churches or other places of worship 
did not need a conditional use permit under the new Stafford County rules. Fair enough. But that exemption was of little use to the AMAA, as Muslim cemeteries cannot be located next to a mosque, just as Jewish cemeteries are usually not co-located with synagogues. To the lawyers for the AMAA and the Justice Department, this looked like more evidence of anti-Muslim religious discrimination in violation of the Federal Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act and the state and federal constitutions. The county kept changing the rules and making the AMAA jump through hoops they didn't have to jump through before, and the churchyard cemetery still didn't have to do. I want to cut back to this idea of the government and the local government. You know, you, you complied with the rules, you did the checking, you bought the land, you're doing studies, you're engineering, you're getting things ready to go, and then were blindsided, as you put it, by the sudden change in the rules uh, midstream and then had to go through this legal process to reestablish your rights. Skander, you, you worked, didn't you, for municipal government in Alexandria, just up by 95. Is this how local government is supposed to work? Openly, I never saw that, that they will be doing that. But under the table, many things could happen. But this was a clear cut, you know, the violation of the, you know, land use and our lupa, whatever the other, you know, uh, things were. And apart from the relationship with the planning commission and then later with the county and the supervisors, which obviously was fraught during this period, how's your relationship between AMMA and the broader community in Stafford County as a whole, not just not just the government, but the neighbors? I happened to talk to the neighbors also and some other you know, people living in Stafford County. They were all kind of supportive, as you know, you might have seen the Fredericks newspaper, Fredericksburg newspaper, which supported us wholeheartedly. You know, we have no complaint. And Washington Post, the Washington Times, WTOP, the news radio station over here. I heard all of their commentaries regarding the cemetery and community as a whole did agree with our stance, what we did and everything. They did not agree with the county, what the county did. Yeah. Well, given the community's wide support and the support in local press and media, why do you think the county persisted in going this wrong direction, which ultimately, of course, resulted in the settlement because they had violated the law? I would say just the stubbornness of one or two people in the higher positions in the county, that's what started all that problem. So in response to the case in 2020, what did the county do? We filed our suit in June of 2020. In August of 2020, the county amended the ordinance. So they reduced the distance that was required between cemeteries and private wells from 900 feet down to 656. And they completely eliminated the 900 feet from perennial streams. But for this purpose, they did get what they considered a geographical study of the water tables to show how the impact was possible. And that's to justify there still being well in excess of the 100 feet uh, state law requirement. Correct. And it continued to still preclude the AMAA from using 80% of their land. So even though there was a change and there was further pretext as to how it was justified, we argued that it wasn't enough. It still subjected the AMA to a discretionary process, which the board wanted. They wanted to be able to step in and say, we're not going to authorize this, even in this case. Because now they needed a conditional use permit in order to go forward. Was that the same rule that would have applied to any cemetery now in the county? So no, that was the big thing we argued in filing an amended complaint that this new ordinance completely exempted what the county defined as churchyard cemeteries, which 
basically is traditional what you think of as like a Catholic cemetery right next to a Catholic church. And why is that discriminatory in this case? In this case, our clients believed that a mosque could not be co-located with a cemetery. That was their religious belief. And so the county was well aware of that. We pointed to a prior application from a separate Muslim group that happened sometime around 2015 as well, where they sought an exemption from this churchyard requirement necessitating a house of worship on the same land, and the county rejected their application. Right. So basically, they come up with an exception that could only really apply to Christian churches or but you know, not for other faiths where you're not allowed to co-locate burial sites with the prayer facility. Right. We argued that they intentionally carved out this churchyard exception to exclude the Muslim cemetery. It seems like they're going backwards. It, it, it did feel that way. It did feel that way, Alan. You know, I mean, in this whole case, the nature of this water safety concern, it always felt so pretextual. And it was so transparently pretextual. Because if you look at this county, there are other sources of contaminants that are far more dangerous than grave sites, you know, agricultural contaminants, other feedlots, things like that. And the county was, you know, in no similar rush to try and prevent those things from being further away from perennial streams. And I think it's really important to emphasize that, you know, the starting point of this case was that the Virginia Health Department, there were emails in which the Virginia Health Department made very clear to the same county officials who spearheaded this process, that 100 feet of separation was more than enough to guard against any potential health concerns, 100 feet between grave sites and private wells. And so the starting point is they knew that fact. There was no reason to disagree with that fact, no reason to challenge the Virginia Health Department. And yet an elaborate process was created to find some pretextual way to require greater separation. And when we started this lawsuit, to get back to your original question that Melanie was fielding in 2020, I think there was a real reluctance to acknowledge that there had been any pretext. So everyone just dug in deeper. You know, when we said to the county, well, this is a problem, obviously you're being sued now, not just by the AMAA and Milbank, but by the Justice Department in parallel. Um, you need to back down. I think the initial reaction was to just dig in deeper on the pretextual reasons for doing this, which is water safety, to find more and more excuses and, you know, then to eventually repeal the laws, but still always floating the idea that water safety was at the heart of things when it never really was. Right. You know, you mentioned DOJ. So after when you filed your case for the AMAA in June of 2020, shortly thereafter, uh, very shortly thereafter, DOJ comes in and also files their case. Now, what's the difference between your private right of action on behalf of the Cemetery Association and the Justice Department, the federal government coming in to assert the desire for some remedy? Well, the DOJ is always the big player in the room. That's the heavyweight that the, the county was very unhappy to say that the Department of Justice under the then administration was still suing them for discrimination against Muslims. I will say that the DOJ complaint focused on the substantial burden. They recognize the circumstantial nature of some of the discrimination aspects of this. The difference is they can't seek damages. So once the county was trying to amend the statute, they were trying to get out from underneath the DOJ's thumb. They thought if they could amend the ordinance and they could basically appease the DOJ, they could get rid of them because they can't pursue damages or they can't pursue yeah, monetary damages once once the statute's repealed. Right. So DOJ's, you know, their agenda in these cases is there's a discriminatory law or you know some kind of a violative, unconstitutional local statute or ordinance, repeal it or change it or bring it into conformity with constitutional requirements, and then our work here is done. 
Whereas the AMAA, your client, they're investing a lot of money. They spend $800,000 to buy the site. They're spending legal fees and filing fees and engineering reports you know, for a number of years. They've got a lot of money sunk into this. They're being harmed both financially and otherwise by the county's actions. So that's, that is a different remedy that you're seeking than what DOJ was seeking. Absolutely. That, that's very much right. And I would say, you know, it's an interesting strategy point. How do you deal with these kinds of cases when you're working alongside DOJ? Our strategy here was to bear hug DOJ and to really work in lockstep. Because let's be honest, DOJ is the 800-pound gorilla, particularly in terms of putting pressure on elected officials. So it's one thing if you're a board of supervisor, you know, on the board of supervisors of Stafford County to be walking around and explaining why some constituent is suing you and why they may or may not be right. But when the Justice Department, which, you know, doesn't have any personal skin in the game, is suing you and saying that essentially you've engaged in a discriminatory act, it's a really, really difficult thing to explain away. So we we wanted to make sure that the DOJ, we were the, we were in lockstep with the DOJ every way and that that was, you know, additional pressure, even though we were seeking different remedies. So what happened next? Following the 2020 amendment, the county fully expect us to all walk away and dismiss our cases, but we, like they, doubled down and we filed amended complaints once again. I think we had the benefit here of having a judge who who clearly understood what was happening and was willing to allow us to continue to make these amendments and to watch what happened without dismissing the case and allowing us to bring it again in the future. The Eastern District of Virginia, right, is colloquially known as the rocket docket. And we drew Judge Brinkema, and she definitely enforces that moniker. She ruled on everything within days, if not hours, of motions being filed. And she clearly read everything very closely and picked up on the nuances that were happening and was unwilling to let go of the case until we actually reached a settlement. And so we were able to file the motions to amend the complaints multiple times. And during that process, I should add, which I think was very helpful, discovery was ongoing. So we were taking depositions, we were receiving and reviewing documents, which you don't always have the benefit of doing in a litigation where there's a motion to dismiss pending. And we used that process to learn about the case, to to build our case, but also to educate the defendants. So there are multiple board members, multiple planning commission members who didn't necessarily know what the other members had said in emails. And so we were able to use those depositions to show them, in fact, people who thought they were acting in good faith in, in you know, adopting a statute, perhaps. Well, do you know what the real genesis of this was? And their eyes were opened. And I think that is ultimately what led them to, in December 2020, fully repeal the ordinance in its entirety. They basically have a hole in their code now that just says, as to the establishment of cemeteries, we defer to the Virginia code and we're not going to regulate it. Yeah, in fact, there was an interesting comment that one of the supervisors had about that, which is you've got this requirement for new cemeteries anyway that under state law, not only not only the minimum setbacks, but also the requirement that adjacent landowners in the community, uh, they have a consent right. So if the community can consent and you're otherwise following the things that are safe, why do you need a, a local ordinance, I guess was the, the thrust of the comment. Yes. So you've got this consent right. And the consent right basically says, look, if I live within 250 feet, my house, my front door to a gravesite, then I have a consent right. And essentially, the county started suggesting that it was going to operate under a much more expansive view of consent rights, where 
it was really just 250 feet from property line to property line, from the cemetery property line to my home's property line, creating a much closer boundary and creating a lot more different people who could have consent rights. One of the big issues we were facing is, well, who, who do we need to obtain consent from? The AMAA, under the traditional view of consent rights, had already obtained consent rights at the very moment they started building the cemetery or started planning for the building of the cemetery in 2015. And so our client always viewed it as we've already got the consent of all the people we need to get the consent from. And very quickly at the time of repealing the ordinance, it became clear that some of the neighbors viewed their consent as required and viewed that as a vehicle to still potentially prevent the cemetery from being built. And so that was another reason why we were coming under a lot of pressure from the county to say, well, we've repealed this. Now drop your case. Now go away. We've repealed it. There is no law. And it was really important to us to stay in the game and really push until we had confirmation that the client's application for a cemetery would be accepted and not interfered with by you know, the v- various Virginia departments based on some sort of newfangled theory of consent requirements or something else imposed by these neighbors who had been objecting and spearheading this process all along. So hearing Melanie and Taufik, both of your comments on this, it strikes me there's there's really three levels of law going on here. There's the local action, which is by the elected planning commissioner supervisors at the county level. There's the decisions that a court might make. But the victory here, it would not really lie in getting a judicial opinion that confirms that there was a violation of law and awards damages. There's a third level, which is really more important, and that's contractual where because of the way the court left the jurisdiction open and encouraged the parties to settle and you were able to educate other members of county government as to what some of their colleagues were doing, you're able to come up with a contractual settlement agreement that goes beyond merely removing the bias statute and actually cements protections in place that all parties can agree to for the cemetery to be built as was originally planned. Is that unusual to focus more on a settlement as an outcome than the Perry Mason courtroom victory? Yes. I think this is the kind of case that is typically settled. So you don't get the euphoric joy of a Perry Perry Mason-like victory where you get to say we won big in court. I actually think this is one of those really interesting cases where you have to, you know, pull on all levers. So you're using the law, as you just said, Alan, on multiple different levels to try and, you know, litigate and assert your rights. But at the same time, you're trying to bring other pressure points to bear. You know, you're trying to use media coverage in a way that makes sure that the media is alive to what's going on, has access to public documents, is covering the story. You also try and make sure that through the litigation process, you're educating all the people on the other side about the frailties of their case with an eye to making, you know, achieving a settlement. And so, you know, here we're very, very proud to settle this because it's a pretty rare situation where you get a government agency to acknowledge that its laws are offending the Constitution or offending the rights of its constituents and are forced to repeal them. And then normally, if you ever do get that relief, they want to stop there and say they've remedied the harm. And here we managed to settle this case for $500,000, which is a matter of public record, which is a huge settlement number for our clients in this space, because we had cautioned our clients that we we didn't know what was achievable here and we wanted to be realistic. And it was really important to them that they got compensation and felt that they were made whole for all that they had lost. And so we were, it was important to us to stick to our guns and demand that kind of compensation. And I think that the county's willingness to agree to that settlement number was based on large part, not just on the litigation that we did, the actual courtroom, you know, any kind of particular victory, as much as the 
day-to-day effort to litigate aggressively and make them understand why they were wrong and why they were likely to lose. Well, one thing about negotiating a settlement agreement like any other contract is you're not just persuading a third-party court or jury or arbitrator that you're right and the other person's wrong. You're actually persuading the other person that there's a better solution here that can restore some sense of harmony or balance to the relationship. Right. I mean, we were fortunate to be able to make the progress that we did along the way that laid the groundwork for that, right? Once the ordinance was out of the way and once we had site plan approval for the AMA cemetery to be built, we were able to move forward and say, there is a place for damages here. Our clients have suffered financially. And going forward, you're telling us it's not going to happen again. Great. So let's document that. And we want to make sure we're protected. And you want to make sure that you can have some peace that this is over. That's all well and good. So let's put that down and, and move forward and try to have a good relationship. I mean, the AMAA they're building this cemetery in Stafford County. It's going to be a long, long relationship. There's no reason to burn the bridge. They would like it to be you know, a positive working relationship going forward. Eventually, the county relented, repealing its burdensome cemetery ordinance in October 2020. But the lawsuit continued to ensure that the new AMAA cemetery would be finally approved by the county, and to recover damages for the unnecessary legal costs and other expenses incurred by the AMAA to fight for its property rights and religious freedoms. It took another year for the case to finally settle, with the cemetery's rights restored and the county agreeing to pay $500,000 in compensation for unjustifiably blocking the cemetery. Religious freedom prevailed, and now low-cost burials can continue in Stafford County, Virginia, to allow Muslims of limited means to be buried in accordance with their faith. And what's the status now of the new property? New property, the county, you know, with the blessing of God and uh, all the help we got from our attorneys, Milbank. Skander Javed. We have gotten the approval from the county for the site plan, and we are ready to go, and we have already uh, hired a consultant for the construction. He started getting the bids from different contractors. He has two bids already. And hopefully, hopefully early next year, the work will start uh, on this new cemetery. And how do you feel about that? That's a sigh of relief, I would say, you know, for us, you know, it's really not just, uh, you know, for the AMA, it's for the whole community. You know, people, they're so thankful to this mill bank and their team and the, the way they handle the situation for three, four years. And it was their persistence they kept on doing, kept on working on this case. You know, who wants work free, you know, for something? But we are just you know, lucky that we got this kind of support from Millbank that they just helped us to bring us to this. And this is a big sigh of relief for the AMAA and the community at large in the D.C. metropolitan area. John Kahn. For families to have that comfort that, their loved ones are in a place or have a place to be where their final resting place would be. It's a great satisfaction for the families who are are alive and, and well. Yeah. And not only would it be an additional loss not to have that ability to bury your loved ones according to your faith close by, but being able to do that really does help to process that grief and does help to remember the loved one who's died and to continue the strength of the community and the family in that shared experience of mourning. Yes. 
you know, there aren't any words that we can actually utilize to actually describe our feelings in sense of appreciation. For the collaborative work, you know, DOJ, Muslim Advocates, and No Bank, I get teary-eyed sometimes to see that, you know, there are individuals like Melanie and like yourselves who are doing such great things. We really, really appreciate it. And I say it for the hundreds of thousands of Muslims who are in this community, in the metropolitan community, really, really appreciate what you guys have done. Thank you so much. You know, I'm mindful Islam and Christianity and Judaism trace their roots to Abraham or Ibrahim. And one of the first stories that is told of him is the purchase of a burial plot. So I think it's a, it's a nice ending for this story that you're able to do that again here. I agree with you 100%. You know, this is all the, you know, the Judeo Christian and Muslim you know, tradition that we need to help each other, especially at the time of the grief, you know, when they're in the time of grief. Yeah, and for the families that need these low-cost burials and this assistance, it's critical. I, I happen personally to have been at a memorial service this past week for a friend who passed, and you imagine the sense of loss that people have going through the death of a, a loved one to not know where you can bury them in accordance with your faith. I mean, that just compounds the loss. And so the fact that this cemetery can now be built and can continue to meet the needs of that community, I, I think that's critically important. You know, Alan, on that score, Melanie and I had the privilege just last night before the recording of this to be at a reception held by the AMAA to honor some of the legal teams, not just Milbank, but others that were involved in this case. And I thought one of the interesting things that was said, one of the board members at AMAA said, we always talk about the cost of living in America, but very few people focus on the cost of dying. And it's quite extraordinary. And he was explaining in ways I didn't, I hadn't even fully appreciated or crunched the numbers how it can cost you know upwards of $20,000 to bury a loved one at a time where you're already grieving and, and already perhaps in dire financial straits. And you know one of the advantages that this nonprofit, AMAA, offers, it says, look, the land is free. And you, know, you have to pay the cost of the, the casket or the labor, but it's just over $1,000 that they, they charged for that service. And so you know, it's providing peace of mind to so many people at a really sensitive time. Yeah, I was reminded of that last night, and I thought that was a really important reminder of why we were doing this work and why the work of AMAA is so important. Yeah, it really is. And in so many of these pro bono cases that the firm works on, I know it's just, you know, there really is a critical human need that's being met at a deeper level sometimes than we, we see in our other other day-to-day -day activities. So thank you and congratulations to both of you. I know this is a lot of work over, you know, many years and a terrific outcome. Well, thanks for giving us the space to talk about it. Of course. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Milbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at milbank.com. <laughs>